0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by associate professor of history at the University of Tennessee, Jay Rubinstein. The title of Professor Rubinstein's talk is Guibert de Nogent and his demons, and is the third in the 2010 series of Frankie lectures on the age of the cathedral.
1: Today I'm going to talk about Guibert of Nozhan. I'm going to try to place him a little bit in the age of cathedrals, which is somewhat of a difficult task. Very little of the physical world he knew survives. He came to us at the tail end of the Romanesque building boom when Europe clothed itself in the white mantle of churches celebrated by Rodolphus Glauber. And um, as a result of not having any of these white-mantled churches around in the northern France that Guibert knew, I am forced to be, or perhaps have the blessing, to be able to be a little sloppier than I might otherwise be with the the images I choose. Um, In his own life, Guibert believed that these wells of charity that led to this construction building had run dry. Whatever the case, precious little of the 11th century architectural legacy survives in the regions of France that Guibert knew the lands around Beauvais, Soissons, and Lons, victims equally of rebuilding programs and of frequent wars between France and Germany and sometimes England. A fragment of the cathedral at Beauvais that Guibert would have occasionally visited still stands. Uh, though it is embarrassingly dominated by the unfinished Gothic structure, the tallest in France whose architectural ambitions famously outran its builder's ability to keep it standing, let alone finish it. The 12th century abbatial Church of Saint-Germain-de-Fleu brings us closer to Guibert's world, its facade destroyed during the Hundred Years War, parts of its interior overgrown with mildew, it's too far off the beaten tourist track to make it worth maintaining or fully restoring, or at least that was the case in 1995. My trip, unfortunately coinciding with the town's one-day annual market fair on the first Sunday in October, when it becomes the largest open air garage sale in France. <coughs> the Castle Coussy, which towered over the monastery at Nogent where Guibert was abbot, remains one of the most impressive medieval fortifications in France, even though in World War I German soldiers dynamited and destroyed its massive keep. But what remains are 14th century walls, much grander than the 11th century tower whose brutal lords worked their way into Guibert's nightmares. Nogent itself has long since disappeared, only a small and difficult to find fragment of the church still standing. The ruins at the nearby city of Soissons where Guibert visited often are more wraith-like still. The most obvious gap in the architectural record however is the cathedral at Lone, the city where Guibert stored, or rather where Nogent stored its grain, and where Guibert would have stayed on occasion to to discuss questions of biblical interpretation with the famous school teacher Anselm of Laon. Neither Guibert nor Anselm would have lived long enough to see the cathedral's rebuilding, an important milestone in the transition from the Romanesque to the Gothic style. Guibert's greatest achievement, his autobiographical memoirs, which he titled Three Books of Monodies, is somewhat ghostly too. The title sets a tone since a monody, according to Isidore of Seville, was a sad song performed by a single singer alone on the stage. No medieval exemplar of the text survives. Instead we have two highly imperfect transcriptions both copied by Jesuit scholars, intrigued and perhaps a little nervous at the unusual book they had found. And the book itself is full of ghosts populating the stories that tend to cluster around the end of each of its three main sections, carelessly arranged tales of the supernatural that like the gargoyles in Romanesque churches, peer menacingly from a dark corners and dead ends of the author's imagination. A demon with hunched shoulders paces a dormitory and observes the sleeping entourage of the Bishop of Beauvais before commenting about how one virtuous youth in particular constantly torments him. Lightning strikes Guibert's first church of Saint-Germain and kills three monks. Was it divine ret- retribution, devilish intervention, or some combination of the two? Another monk studies the black arts with a Jew and then takes a mistress, whom, to preserve his own reputation, he transforms for a time into a dog. These are the kind of anecdotes that when set alongside the deeply personal, curiously arranged, often shocking materials that together shape Guibert's monodies, have earned for their author a reputation as the first confirmed medieval neurotic. His life stark evidence for the possibilities inherent in the application of psychoanalytical theory to the premodern world. That was Guibert of Nogent's reputation when I started working with him in 1992. And truth be told, I don't know that I've done much to change it. But my reassessment of his legacy and character grows from three premises. First, any analysis of Guibert must take into account all of his writing, not just the most attractive and accessible material from his memoirs, his exegesis is particularly crucial for this process. Second, Guibert himself was something of a psychological theorist. And I'll pause and say this famous image, which usually decorates the cover of any version of his autobiography, is taken from his exegesis rather than from the memoirs. Um, his exegesis is particularly crucial. Second, Guibert himself was something of a psychological theorist with his own ideas about the structure of the mind and how character develops and how personalities form. These ideas were bound to give some structure to the way he describes his own painful transition from childhood into the adult world and eventually to a position of real leadership and responsibility. And finally, the fundamental features of Guibert's psychology is that life is a series of struggles, and mainly of interior, internal struggles. We must take into account this not so much theoretical perspective as much as it's a habit of thought when reading unusual, the unusual passages referred to above, where God, angelic powers, and demonic spirits intervene in Guibert's world. The tales are no less grand for being to some degree battles with the self rather than spiritual tussles with demons. Indeed, Guibert is at his most eloquent when he describes these awesome struggles in the human psyche, both to know itself and to control itself, filled as it is with ethereal spirits ordered like armies into divisions, the mind is indeed called nothing other than the House of God and the Gate of Heaven where God inhabits and rules which he unlocks in order to allow entry to spiritual and heavenly sites. The demons that Guibert faces so often in his memoirs are surely products of this spiritual conflict, suprarational phenomena rather than supernatural. Well if I could have back one part of the book I wrote on Guibert, it would be this treatment or perhaps failure to treat, at least in detail, these demonic scenes. I wrote there in the book, to ask whether demons were real or imagined makes nonsense of Guibert's own system. The deepest level of reality for him was the internal, the psychological. Physical demons are no more real, and in fact are arguably less real than demons who exist primarily as thought and who make war in our minds. When I reread those words a few days ago, I found myself thinking, now that's a cop out. But I take some comfort in the likelihood that it was Guibert's cop out too, not just my own. Guibert wanted to diminish the powers of demons. He wanted to believe that sin was a product of the mind and that reason was capable of overcoming the earthly desires of affection. But he remained fascinated by demons, even as he reasoned them into irrelevance. Besides the stories in the Monodies, we might consider Guibert's short treatise against the Judaizer where he engaged in theological debate against certain unnamed Jewish adversaries. As part of his presentation he defended the Christian doctrine of the incarnation which Jews found absurd. The idea that God would ever deign to take on to himself something as impure as corrupt humanity. The Jewish polemic seems to have inspired Guibert's old teacher Saint Anselm of Beck too to write his own defense of the incarnation the cur deus homo or why the God man based on Guibert's own diction within his own treatise, he knew of Anselm's book and its methods, innovative in part because as far as sin and salvation were concerned, it took Satan out of the picture. The traditional school of Christian thought, against which Anselm argued, as much as he debated non-believers, held that the devil, due to original sin, this is one I've outlined here briefly, had gained rights over the souls of man in order to ransom a lost humanity From the thrall of Satan, God had become man and lived a sinless life. When the devil tried nonetheless to reclaim Christ's unblemished soul, he broke the terms of his contract and enabled all of humanity to be saved. Anselm argued that this proposition was absurd, that Satan, who embodies injustice, could by definition hold no just rights over man the process of the incarnation was a way to reconcile man to God only through the uniquely appropriate vessel of Christ neither pure man nor pure divinity but instead Deus Homo God-man usually translated the title is why God became man but probably the more appropriate one is um, why the God-man it is an elegant argument perhaps Anselm's greatest intellectual achievement but when Guibert thought about it he preferred the old school of thought Christ became man in order to ransom a sinful humanity. The devil had powers, claims that could only be broken through a legal process mixed with some divine chicanery. Thus, Guibert, when choosing between his beloved teacher and his own demons, Guibert preferred his demons. This inability to escape or overcome spiritual torment is a crucial part of Guibert's story, a story that is at heart, I think, tragic devilish and divine interventions were regular parts of his world phenomena that he tried to understand through the application of coherent laws and a consistent conceptual vocabulary what I'm going to do for the rest of my time here is revisit Guibert, his monodies and the thought system that that underlies them but to do so with a particular emphasis on those occasions when his interpretive tools proved not quite up to the task not able to um, subject the external world to the set of rules that he developed that were somehow compatible with the optimism of his age and with the theoretical moral principles that Guibert himself, at least in the abstract, enthusiastically embraced. Now, those of you out there who are participating in Professor Bloch's seminar will be pretty familiar with Guibert's monodies at this point. They exist in two competing English translations and should my editor at Penguin continue to show patience, they soon will exist in a third. Um, their unusual character is immediately obvious, perhaps best expressed in terms of chronology. Around 395, Augustine of Hippo would have been writing his confessions. The next person to undertake a similar autobiographical exercise, beginning the story of his life with his birth, moving on into adulthood, and framing it all in the, with the, the idea of this is a dialogue with God, was Guibert of Nogent in 1115. A period of 720 years thus separates the two books. Who was the person who undertook this extraordinary enterprise? Who wanted the people of his age and perhaps of later ages too to know the story of his life? Well by all of the usual criteria he was no one special. He was born in France near Beauvais around 1060 his father, a younger son, and the lesser nobility of the region. Guibert almost missed being born altogether, for during the first seven years of his parents' marriage, they were unable to consummate their relationship. Guibert must have heard that story from his mother, and I can only imagine how uncomfortable that conversation would have been. With the help of friendly witchcraft, the couple eventually did have sex, and had at least three sons, Guibert the youngest of them. His father died when Guibert was still a child, too young to have have formed any real impressions of him, and his mother, now widowed under pressure from her husband's family to remarry, instead established an independent life for herself and hired a teacher to help out with her obviously gifted youngest son. The teacher's name was appropriately Solomon, although he seems to have had very little about him of wisdom, very little about him of the pedagogue apart from a ready whip hand. Guibert's mother found him covered with welts one day after a particularly bad lesson. Eventually both mother and surrogate father abandoned Guibert to take up clerical lives, the mother as an anchoress outside the church of Saint-Germain-de-Flees and Solomon as a monk within its walls. At this point, Guibert flirted with the idea of a career as a knight, but eventually he too followed his mother to Saint-Germain, living for a time as a student in the church before finally joining Solomon also as a monk. Guibert's subsequent career was every bit as undistinguished. Outside of his own writings he has left barely a trace on the historical record. He lived as a monk at Saint-Germain for about 30 years. Despite family connections in the area and despite a concerted effort by his relatives to buy him a job, um, he was unable to get promotion and he eventually learned to adjust to the idea that he would never achieve higher rank in the ecclesiastical world. It was therefore with some surprise that in 1104 he learned he had been elected church of, or abbot rather, of the small church of Notre-Dame de Cousy, de Notre-Dame de Nogent, about 70 miles away. He seems never to have heard of it. The transition to leadership proved difficult. Within three years his monks had driven him out of his office because of circumstances to which he refers but never explains. Either he or a later reader expunged the passage from the the offending passages from the text. He returned to Nogent in 1108, carrying with him an elegant, learned, and at times ecstatic account of the First Crusade, which he dedicated to the nearby Bishop of Soissons, perhaps to reestablish his intellectual uh, credentials. Finally, five years after, or rather five years later, he dedicated an equally long book and an equally impressive book, to the Bishop of laon his tropological or moral commentary on the book of Genesis. This text holds the keys to Guibert's thought system. He tells us as much in his memoirs. In Book 1, Chapter 17, he describes his first meetings with Saint Anselm, at that time prior and then later abbot of the Norman monastery at Beck and of course eventually Archbishop of Canterbury. Anselm was in the habit of visiting saint germain du Flee beginning sometime in the 1070s. The reason for these trips was unclear but to hear Guibert tell it You would have thought he, Guibert, was the special reason and he alone for these visits. He taught me, Guibert says, to divide the mind into three or four parts and show that all transactions of the internal mystery occur as affection, will, reason, and intellect. What I and others had thought to be unified, he resolved by clear distinctions into categories so that the first two parts, affection and will, were not the same unless in the presence of the fourth or the third, intellect or reason. Guibert went on to say, went on rather, to apply these ideas to scriptural passages, he says in particular to the, the book of Genesis. This brief description establishes clear signposts for interpreting the moral commentary on Genesis. It does not, however, do full justice to the originality of Guibert's work. The Moralia in Guinnessum is first a purely tropological analysis, that is, Guibert examines scripture exclusively for lessons that Christians can apply to their everyday lives. Through tradition, exegetes approach the Bible on four levels. The literal, what do words actually, the words actually mean? The allegorical, what do the words tell us about the development of the church? The tropological, what do the words tell us about morality and how to live our lives? And the anagogical, what do they tell us about the last days? Guibert and his decision to emphasize the moral or tropological meanings was very much in line with the spirit of his age, the 12th century being the great age for moral commentary, most famously Bernard's, St. Bernard's impassioned sermons on the Song of Songs. Guibert's own readings on Genesis however are far more systematic than Bernard's or most of his contemporaries. In his analysis, every character in Genesis becomes the embodiment of one of these psychological faculties, usually affection, will, reason, or intellect. More startlingly, the characters and functions together throughout the whole book form a single mind on a single journey. Genesis becomes, in Guibert's own words, a mystical narrative. Most usually, one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob embodies reason. Their wives usually symbolize the will and their children act as affection. If the mind is in its proper working order with the patriarch or reason in charge it will enjoy peace and gain riches. If reason surrenders its authority as when for example Abraham has his wife Sarah pretend to be his sister and thereby breaking apart this proper family structure the Christian mind falls into sin. The pattern repeats itself throughout Genesis until the story of Joseph the son of Jacob. Joseph embodies a new intellectual function, this last one down here, intellect or understanding or occasionally um, the unusual word intellectualitas. Clarifying some of the obscurity from the description of the Monades about the lessons he got from Anselm, Guibert tells us that Joseph represents a part of the mind developed through spiritual exercise that allows the mind to focus on God alone to engage in pure contemplation. Guibert's name for it, Intellectus, recalls Saint Anselm's famous dictum from the Proslogian, which Anselm was writing at precisely the same time he was teaching Guibert, Fides quirens intellectum or faith-seeking understanding. The understanding that Anselm found was the ontological argument, a logical path that explained the necessity of God's existence. If, if that than which nothing greater can be thought exists in the mind, it must also exist in reality and can only be God. To to summarize his one-paragraph argument down to one sentence. Um, It makes sense if you think about it a long enough time. Um, What Guibert sought in his moral commentaries was the prize that probably eluded Anselm's overly refined logic. Um, My old mentor, Jerry Kaspari, said that he thought the ontological argument was God's consolation prize. No, you can't see me, but you can have this great idea. Um, Guibert probably wanted the same thing, but what he... What he got was an understanding of how to achieve continuous monastic contemplation and a concomitant occasional unbroken vision of God. This sort of economy for salvation leaves little room for external enemies. Sin originates from a failure of the faculty of reason to maintain a proper balance within the mind, not primarily from the work of the devil or his servants. When Guibert speaks of demons in his exegesis he tends to place them in opposition to vices which are motions of the mind towards earthly things, to use one of his frequent technical formulae. And he usually focuses on wicked thoughts themselves rather than their possible demonic origins. He addresses the mechanics of demonology in detail in only one place in his moral commentary on Genesis, a, common, a commentary on chapter 26, verse 18, which is an otherwise unremarkable section where Isaac digs anew wells that had first been dug by his father Abraham but the Philistines had in the interim filled them up with rocks. The Philistines in this instance are demons drunk with pride and overcome with envy they fill up the wells created by affection and certain interior motions which is to say servants of Abraham um, faculties of the mind that serve reason effectively blocking up the perceptivity of good affections with rocks of earthly care Or else these wells are the recognition and understanding of virtue from which we draw life-giving water sealed up by demons with a barricade of earthiness. Whatever demons are part of the physical world. They enter human thoughts through the senses, blocking them in such a way that they can no longer process affections useful for contemplation. Instead, the mind focuses on these rocks, on surface things, on the physical world. Encounters with these otherwise harmless demons, though, could be terrifying. What Guibert describes in his exegesis with cool technical tropological language, he relates in gripping narrative fashion in his memoirs when a monastic guardian awakens to find an army of demons assembled in the church's cemetery and then marching into the monk's dormitory. Although, the power of under, although his power of understanding, Guibert writes, was free to perceive all of this, some spiritual force suppressed the movement of his tongue and of his body as the demons entered the church passing in front of his bed, rushing between the choir and the altar, and heading for the house where the ill man lay. The guardian was mentally aware that this was happening, and since he knew well that such an army gathered for a death, in spirit he prayed to God to be delivered from them. But however frightening these moments may be, the young exegete Guibert leaves us in no doubt as to where the blame lies. It's not with the devil, who admittedly does have some power over man due to the fact that he is on good terms with our impetuous desires. But if demons block the wells of our senses, it's only because reason is absent. Um, In the symbolic language of of Genesis, Abraham is dead and Isaac hasn't asserted himself properly. As Guibert observes elsewhere in his commentaries, it is typical of the human mind to blame acts of wickedness on demons or else on the violence of the flesh, when actually it's the Christians who ought to take responsibility. They committed their deeds willingly. Guibert's attitude towards demons is once again optimistic, typical of his age, about the potentialities of the human mind. Demons are real, they are authentic enemies, but they only exercise as much control over us as we are willing to allow them. That's the central beauty of Guibert's thought, is characteristic of him as a young man trying through reason to overcome his own impetuous desires as it is of him as an old man slowly going blind and of necessity turning inward looking for truth inside him rather than the increasingly invisible outside world. When God acted in the world he did so as a way of providing allegorical instruction as a me- he gave us visions as a means of discerning truth. When God sees something in creation and says it is good he doesn't actually see it he makes us see it he makes us understand it he communicates with us through empty forms, through species, to use one of the terms characteristic both of Guibert's moral thought and his Eucharistic theology, species that point us towards deeper truths, towards essences, which are eternal truths. When Christ ascended to heaven before the gaze of his apostles, he didn't in reality go up. Um, the true ascent for human beings is not to rise up, nor is it as the rule of St. Benedict has to lower oneself as humility it is rather to turn inward for that is where heaven is. That is where those ethereal armies are ordered into division. Against this contemplative gaze the devil can exercise no occluding power he is only a figure of fun. Such reasoned theological formulae however would have seemed cold comfort to the character Guibert, as he describes life in his monodies. One night, he says, after I woke up from my dismal troubles as I was lying in bed, it was winter, I think, the lamp next to me glowed brightly, and I felt more at ease. Suddenly, right over my head, or so I thought, arose a great clamor of many voices, though it was the dead of night. It was only the sound of voices without words. But the force of this sudden blow struck hard at my temples, and I lost my senses, as if I had fallen asleep, and I thought I saw a dead man someone was crying out that he had died in the baths completely terrified at this vision I leapt from my bed a scream in my throat and in a moment I looked back the lamp had gone out and through the darkness of a great shadow I gazed upon a demon standing over me in his true form. Only the steadying hand of Solomon Guibert's teacher provided reassurance when demons chose to overwhelm a Christian senses retreat into an internal contemplative peace was not an option no matter how insubstantial or imperfect that adversary's degree of existence. By the conservative account of Paul Jacques there are 22 instances of demonic activity in the in the monodies. I say conservative because he doesn't count demonic possession for some reason and certain other stories where demons seem implied at least. These stories most often involve attempts of demons to snatch souls of bodies as the bodies die. To see a demon therefore was to face death. In one of Guibert's stories three female demons inhabit a fat monk's fleshy body and transform themselves these three women into a tertiary fever. Unsurprisingly most of these stories occur at night though in the dimly lit halls of a Romanesque church night or twilight was a natural and perpetual state of things and demons and grotesqueries in the and the dead the monks regular companions. However bright the exterior of the white mantle of churches, in the interior all was shadow and smoke. Two of the 22 stories involved Guibert directly and 10 concerned people he knew, including in one case his mother, and I would add a second to that. The demon in the story involving his mother, perhaps the devil himself, crawled into bed with her and attempted to smother her, or at least that's how Guibert describes it. Um, Elsewhere in the Monodies, he observes that the devil has been known to try to have sex with women by crawling into bed with them, but shame prohibits him from speaking further on that topic. Um, During this attack on his mother, like the church guardian, she lost all power to call for help. Her breath grew tight, suffocating her, all freedom of movement left her limbs, and she could not utter any sound at all. Her power to reason was mute but free, so she called upon God, the only help she had. Fortuitously, another spirit appeared at the head of her bed and repeatedly called out to the Virgin Mary on her behalf. The evil spirit raised its head up from over her body, tried to get away, but then the good spirit took it and threw it hard onto the floor. Um, And then a more earthly sensibility kind of settled over the room as the serving women arrived and asked what was wrong. Another vision experienced by Guibert's mother does not make this list of 22, Guibert would have agreed with this assessment because he stresses this didn't come from demons it had good information in it so demons weren't the source Um, but malevolent forces did play a part in it as usual it occurred at night when Guibert's mother found herself walking along a dark colonnade probably a cloister as she moved closer she felt her body slip away from her as if she were shedding a robe and she prayed silently to God, only that she be allowed to return to her flesh at some point. At the end of the colonnade, she saw a well. In folklore, as in learned exegesis, wells provided openings to the demonic. And when she looked down this one, men of ghostly form leapt out from its depths. Their hair appeared worm-eaten, and they tried to grab her and pull her down. She was trembling with fear, woefully unsettled by their attack, when suddenly a voice burst out from behind her, Don't touch her! The ghost leapt back down the well, driven away by this forbidding voice. Good and evil spirits thus did battle on the fields of Guibert's mother's mind. Perhaps a more literal enactment of those spiritual wars as a young man he had imagined occurring in his commentary on Genesis. Standing at the well and staring into it, she found herself suddenly transported into another world. Or perhaps standing on the boundary between two worlds as if a new reality had folded over her. The anagogical level of exegesis embracing the literal world she lived in, for her dead husband, Guibert's father, stood at her side, even as he stood on the streets of hell. She asked if it was indeed Avrard, and for the first time, Guibert reveals to the readers his father's name. It was Avrard, but the soul denied it. To explain why, Guibert falls back onto the technical language of moral psychology. Obviously, spirits need no names, since all their vision, or rather their knowledge, comes from the internal presuming that he was nevertheless her husband she asked how he was and he uncovered his arms and sides and showed that they were lacerated and crisscrossed with wounds she stared in horror shaken to her bones the visible shape of a young boy was also there the vocabulary again is eucharistic Um, the ghost is the shape of the boy just as the bread and the wine are the shape of the body and blood of christ on the altar he was shrieking so loudly that it caused her great distress as she watched him Moved by his cries, she asked her husband's spirit, how my lord can you endure this infant's wailings? He replied, whether I want to or not, I endure it. The story is one of the earliest and richest imaginings of purgatory. Though the boundaries of purgatory and hell could still be fairly fluid in 1100. With a mathematical elegance that would have pleased Dante, Everard suffers torments, Um, exactly parallel to the single most wretched deed in his life Um, and with real narrative virtuosity Guibert reveals it because he's kept it hidden from his readers up to this point although he set the scene earlier when he said his parents didn't manage to have sex for seven years during this period of extended frustration certain wicked counselors had advised Evrard who still thought like a child to sleep with other women like a young man he obeyed them and after an ill-considered coupling he had a child from some woman or other the child died almost immediately and unbaptized the lacerations on the spirits side signified corruption of his wedding oath and that awful shrieking was the destruction of an infant soul born into sin it was the business of monasteries such as Saint-Germain to pray for souls like Evard's. members of families who had acted as benefactors whose names had been entered onto church rolls, many of them lying just outside the church door, some of them uncomfortably close beneath the floor. Guibert's mother had been praying regularly and no doubt theatrically for Everard's salvation. Upon learning of his specific torments she ratcheted up the melodrama. Not only did she continue to perform night offices but also opposing like with like she adopted an infant whose screams were as bad or as worse as the one she had seen in hell. The child's cries were especially shrill at night when the devil intent on robbing the woman's prayers of their efficacy had freer access to the crib and torment the baby all the more viciously. So bad were these nights that Guibert's mother hired nurses to stand over the child and wave rattles in its face trying to distract it from the more terrifying creatures that were um, lurking in the shadows of her little cell. She knew these torments were expiating her husband's torments seen in her vision and she endured them happily because as it seemed to her, and is in fact the case, by suffering together with him, she also alleviated his anguish. Monasteries were in theory fortresses against such otherworldly assaults. This type of seclusion, a protective wilderness built of stone was enshrined in the rule of Saint Benedict. The devil could only gain access to the church when the abbot was away. It's enshrined both in the rule but also in the the founder's life and the life of Benedict. Um, In one story, for example, a monk decides he wants to leave the church. Benedict rebukes him, says, no, you can't do that. He insists Benedict allows him to depart. He was no sooner out the gate when he found a dragon in his way, waiting for him with open mouth. About to be devoured, he began in great fear and trembling to cry out loud saying, help, help, this dragon's going to eat me. Such were the protections offered by the monastery. He went back inside and survived in a violent, unstable, and haunted world. No fortress, no wilderness, no virtue provided absolute protection. I'd like to remind everyone, including myself, Guibert writes, to consider that the prince of the world approached the son of God to tempt him, over whom he had no power. And if the devil approached him, How much more will he come to us, over whom his power is nearly complete? But the monastery walls did offer at least relative security for contemplation and relative hope for attaining what was, for Guibert the goal of contemplation and of life as a whole. Perfect understanding and a foretaste of paradise. Monks, however, were always vulnerable. They could unwittingly invite the devil into their walls if they brought in impurities from the outside world, either through objects or through their own memories. The presence of a money purse, the onset of lascivious thoughts, or in the case of Young Bear, the composition of lewd poetry, all allowed the devil or, or his service access to a Christian mind through the open wells of sensory perception and from there into the monastery itself. It was again the abbot's job to regulate discipline, protect his charges from the devil's wiles. Again, the life of Benedict provides the ideal example of this, his monks were most vulnerable if the abbot left. In one instance, Benedict says, I'm going to a, the shrine of St. John outside the church to pray. As he walks out, he sees a horrible man who is the devil, and he says, what are you doing? The devil says, I'm going to your monastery to give your monks some medicine. Benedict still goes ahead and prays, finishes his prayers, go back, goes back in, finds a monk lying down by the river, trembling, he's been possessed. Benedict whacks the monk on the head and the devil goes away. Um uh, so, well, that's what the abbot was supposed to do. Guibert's own abbot, when he was a monk, whose name was Garnier, Guibert didn't seem to have much respect for him. Garnier didn't respect Guibert's own brilliance or recognize it. And when Guibert decided he'd write his moral commentary on Genesis, which, which had so many crucial truths in it, um, his abbot ordered him not to. Guibert disobeyed. Uh, one senses in Guibert the belief that he would have been much better at Garnier's job. His own election as abbot of Nogent, however, immediately provided a lot of contradictory evidence to this confidence. Um, He had three moments in the spotlight, as near as he can tell when he was abbot. In 1106, he traveled to Lange, where he spoke before Pope Paschal II. He spoke on behalf of Bishop Godry, who had been elected bishop of Lange, but whose election was disputed. Guibert defended his election, um, spoke out on Godry's behalf, and Godry proved to be the worst bishop ever. Um, the most corrupt man um, ever to hold that bishopric, and as Guibert tells it, that was a hotly disputed title, worst bishop ever of Long. Um, in 1111, after the murder of Gerard de Kirsi, at which the bishop had conspired, Guibert was called upon to deliver a sermon of reconciliation in the church. It probably helped trigger a riot. Um, a few days later, Bishop Godry delivered a sermon in which he excommunicated. Not the people who had actually killed Gerard, but rather the people who had attempted to punish the murderers. Guibert turned to the fellow sitting next to him and said, Can you believe what that guy's saying? Gaudry said, You want to share that with the rest of us, Guibert? And he said, No. Um, he didn't speak out when he had his chance. A few months later, the townspeople in Long did riot and the cathedral was destroyed, Guibert having played a crucial part in its destruction, um, to all appearances. Um, he doesn't even mention here that well he does as I said he mentions earlier but never explains why in the middle of all this activity he had to leave his monastery perhaps in fear for his life because his monks were rebelling against him we don't know why all he says is he's glad his mother had died so she didn't have to see his shameful return it wouldn't have surprised her she had always predicted he would fail his excursions into politics were equally bad or rather into theology his main desire was, or his main contribution to theology was a composition of a book that has intrigued modern scholars almost as much as the Monodies. It's his lengthy tract on the relics of saints. In it, Guibert criticizes harshly the abuses associated with many nearby saints cults. His argument is in part historical, particularly against the church of Saint-Médard de Soissons, which claimed to have a baby tooth of Christ. The historical part of the argument is this is stupid, why would the Virgin Mary or anyone have preserved a baby tooth? Um, They didn't have relic cults back then, which is a pretty cogent argument. But it's also theological, he says, the Eucharist provides universally and perfectly everyone access to Christ's body in its entirety. The monks at Soissons are trying to usurp part of this miracle for itself and that is a travesty. Um, That is a crime. Um, It's a beautifully constructed elegant argument and its attack on fakeries were probably offensive to his friends and colleagues and probably also equally difficult to overcome. About the Eucharist, he really wasn't that prepared to talk. It left him more vulnerable and he was eventually forced to cut up his book, literally, to renounce and rewrite sections of it and then to rewrite the revisions to avoid the damning in every sense charge of heresy. These were the demons Guibert could not control. They were the essential tragedy of his life, the products of his own mind, as his moral theology dictated, who were nonetheless terrifyingly real for all that. Was Guibert the identifiable neurotic that some of my predecessors believed him to be? The descriptor is not entirely inappropriate. Certainly, by the time he wrote his Monodies in 1115, and during the final decade of his life that followed that composition, The roots of the adult trauma, this adult trauma he felt likely can be found in his childhood, um, Can be attributed to the early death of his father, can be attributed to the abusiveness of his surrogate father Solomon, and to the conduct of his mother, who continued to live outside the walls of his monastery at Saint-Germain, who enjoyed free access to the church, apparently anytime she wanted while he was a monk there, and who adopted a notoriously ill-tempered child in penance for Guibert's father's sexual transgressions that everybody would have known about and that she regularly prophesied that Guibert would be a failure no matter what he tried to do. All of this probably intensified his mental anguish. But the central trauma in the Monades is that Guibert the character never reaches the ending for life that Guibert the theologian predicted for him. Life was a pilgrimage as any student of St. Augustine would have known. The journey was long and full of frustrations. I confess to your greatness God, he writes at the beginning of his Monodies, Guibert. my departures from you caused by countless errors and the frequent returns you inspired from my inner wretchedness back to you. The Christian life was an elaborate journey but like the famous labyrinth in Chartres Cathedral it had no dead ends and only one conclusion peace, contemplation, the heavenly Jerusalem, perfect understanding. The old Guibert, who had witnessed the destruction of a city who had failed as a monastic leader to keep, so, keep his monks in line and his own demons at bay, who had helped bring about the destruction of a church in a city, who as a theologian had felt his line of connection to higher spiritual truths definitively severed, must have wondered if the end point to his journey would be the one promised here, or perhaps instead it would be the classic figure of the labyrinth, the Minotaur, drawn into a manuscript by a canon about 100 miles from Nojon in Saint-Omer, at almost precisely the same time, Guibert was writing his memoirs. All of the spiritual advances and setbacks, the trials of monastic leadership, the contemplation of divine mysteries, had led him here, only to one of the grotesqueries depicted atop the dimly lit cathedral inside the white mantle of churches with which, just before his birth, France had clothed herself. Thank you.
0: The Franke Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie, and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. This term, the series explores the making and meaning of the High Middle Ages, with the Gothic Cathedral serving as a window on the religious, intellectual, and literary culture of the times. It is organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, taught by R. Howard Block, Sterling Professor of French, and the Chair of the Humanities Program. Jay Rubinstein spoke on March 2, 2010, at the Whitney's Humanities Center.